Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Once Bitten podcast. This is the seventh straight day drop in the wall of content series. Why am I doing this? I have no idea. I just had content and interviews backed up that I just, you know, if you've got them, drop them. Let's go. This this space is moving so quickly that it just seemed crazy to, to be sitting on any content. And I don't want to have a conversation with someone and, and something just change within a few days and that content age so quickly. So here we go. This this one is with Dr. Bitcoin MD. Many followers on Twitter, many of you listening to this will know who he is, but may not have heard him before on a podcast. So I hope you really enjoy this episode with him. Before we do the show, I would like to shill a few companies that are supporting the podcast. That's CoinFloor in the UK, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Use that code. You'll save on commissions. You can go and smash buy. It is an exchange or you can dollar cost average, pound cost average, fiat cost average. With all of these companies I'm about to mention, the next one is swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. You can head across there in the US. They have you covered across the whole of the country and you can go start stacking your sats. Dollar cost average out of your dollars, your US dollar stimmy checks into Bitcoin to save your future. And in Europe, across Europe, relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash Bitten. You can head over there and start your fiat cost averaging out of your euros and out of your Swiss into Bitcoin as well. Now, once you have this Bitcoin, you want to lock it up on a very secure, safe hardware wallet. That is Bitbox 02 hardware wallet, Bitcoin only edition. Head to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten to get yourself a discount and check them out. Enjoy this one. Okay, we are good to go. And that noise in the background is the good doctor finishing the pour of his beer. So uh, it's good to have you on the show, man. Nice to meet you. It's nice to be here. Big fan. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, okay. As is custom, we have young Lauren here to ask the first question. Okay. So I got two questions and one of them is going to be, were you, are you busy? <laughs> Am I busy? Uh, if you look at my Twitter, uh, apparently not, uh, <laughs> because I'm on Twitter all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I am quite busy because uh, this past year has been very interesting in terms of uh, how everything has changed. So I'm busy in a different way than I used to be. So I'm working a lot more from home. I'm doing a lot of calls with my patients and with the hospitals and everyone rather than going in most of the time. So it's different. I've had to change the way I normally work, but still busy. Um, you wouldn't know it if you looked at my Twitter, but I am still busy. <laughs> okay. And my second question is, why did you decide to become a doctor? 
That is an excellent question. So, um, the reason why I decided to become a doctor is because when I was very young, there were a couple people in my family that got very sick, including my dad. So I wanted to learn more about why he got sick and what I could do to help. So when other people get sick, I could try to help them and their families um, deal with it. So it started at a very young age. And then I also liked learning about the science behind it, the biology and the uh, biochemistry and all that. So eventually I just learned to enjoy all of it together, dealing with people, but also dealing with the science that goes along with it. I thought you would be like, uh, I did not expect that kind of answer. Mm. I thought, like, it's a cool answer, huh? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what were you what, expecting? What, yeah. What did you expect? Like, um, Why do most people want to become doctors? In to your... like mostly help people. Yeah, that's what we we like to believe. Yeah, a lot of people just get pushed into it. I think I'm going to ask the doctor. We're going to have this discussion. Um, when yeah. so I mean, you can hang around if you want, or are you uh, are you done with your questions? Yeah, I'm done with my questions because I have to go get your beer. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, we did have strict <laughs> instructions, didn't we? Okay. <laughs> well, do you want to say uh, goodbye? Yeah, thank you. Bye. You don't have any problems. You want to run past the doctor? No. No, you're all healthy at the moment. Like, no aches and pains. No. No? Good. No. Good. <laughs> uh, bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, man. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole, first of all. Um, it's amazing how quickly they open up. How how old were you when when that happened? Then, when when your dad got sick, and uh, do you mind telling us what is he still around? Is um, did he recover? Or what what was he going through? So uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about this. A lot of this, it, it's some, it's a little strange because I've gotten to the point in my life where I look back at these things and it almost seems like a different lifetime. So I have this sense of detachment from it um, in a good way. Uh, it gives me some perspective. So I was eight years old when my dad actually passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And he was 38 at the time. So he was very young. And we found out later that he had an undiagnosed medical condition that uh, could have been resolved fairly easily had it been caught in time. So that is an event that changed the course of my life, changed the course of my family's life. It really had a big impact on us. And I think speaking for me personally, um, it got me interested in, in medicine and what I could be doing um, to learn more about it, to help other people who are going through it and maybe help stop other people from going through that difficult time. Uh, that's it, it was a bit of a childish and naive outlook on it, but that's the way I saw the world at that point, right? And then my views on medicine and and life obviously evolved as as I grew older. But that's essentially where it started. And um, 
unfortunately the the, <laughs> the hand I was dealt was really tough because not soon uh, after that my grandmother so this is my mother's mother um, was dealing with both Alzheimer's and uh, cancer so looking at it from my mother's perspective she had just lost her husband and also was dealing with her mother who was uh, dealing with Alzheimer's and and cancer and at the time you know I was young I, I was eight my brother was even younger so we were just along for the ride we didn't really understand what was happening and you can only take in so much at that age and looking back now I just I'm not really sure how we managed to pull ourselves out of it but we did all credit to my mother who is an incredible human being I'm very lucky that I had her um support the whole way through uh but yeah that's that was what started me on my journey to medicine and medical school and my career really wow man that's um that's yeah that's very very tough yeah when when you were talking about um your mom on your your grandmother on your mother's side you know I immediately realized whoa that's a lot of shit to deal with uh yeah. for, for your mom at that stage holy crap all right um so then how wh- where did um how did you find yourself ending up going through like uh, med school and uh talk us through some of some of those experiences because as i just said when when lauren was signing off a lot of people do get pushed into this profession right because they it's like either a family kind of rite of passage or that's what's expected of the eldest son or whatever you know the family kind of makeup is um what 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 do you see happening there um i think that's absolutely true there's a reason that stereotype exists that a lot of people get pushed into medicine it's i think it's seen as a stepping stone or a you know a familial milestone for someone in your family especially if they haven't done it before to achieve that level in society i i think it's like a social status type of thing to become a doctor or even some other type of profession, maybe even a lawyer or something that represents a step up compared to what everyone else has experienced in your family. So I'll, I'll give you some perspective for my family. So uh, I'm first generation American. So my parents both migrated to the United States in the 60s. Um, their parents lived one generation in the Middle East. And so my family has been migrating generation by generation to different places and they never got the best education. They never got the best uh, training. They were hardworking people that worked day and night just to put food on the table. So when it came to me, I am the oldest son and I am the oldest of my family in terms of the the uh the kids um well we're no longer the kids but you know what i mean uh in terms of my generation 
And I did feel that pressure uh, of being the oldest son and going into medicine. But I also wanted to go into medicine at the same time. So I was able to take on that pressure and handle it. However, that's not always the case with most people. I know there were a lot of people in, in school that I went to that were pushed into it and really were not able to cope with that type of pressure. And it's very common. It's much more common than people think. Um, I, I think that for me, I also wanted to achieve it for other people in my family in a way, because in my particular circumstances, looking at someone like my mother who had to deal with so much, part of my achievement was in a way, uh, gratitude for all that she did for me. It was a way to, to say thank you for supporting me and pushing me in the right direction and, and being there for me in the difficult times. And this is my way of showing you that, you know, I'm doing my part as well. I'm giving back as well. And I want to make sure I put your name, um, put your name up there and make sure I, I do you proud. So there is, there are two sides to that coin. There is the pressure, but there's also the, the sense of duty and responsibility as well. Yeah, for sure. And what what did it lead you into? What what kind of uh, practicing uh, medicine are you practicing? So, I originally thought I wanted to do cardiology because of my experience with my dad. But when I learned about my grandmother and what she was dealing with in terms of Alzheimer's, I started becoming really interested in uh, neuro uh, neurology and neuroscience. Um, so that's what I studied in my undergraduate degree. I did uh, neuroscience and then I did quite a bit of research on Alzheimer's before I went into medical school and then I became a neurologist. So I just went down that path and uh, still to this day, the human brain is to me one of the most fascinating things in the world. So I never get sick of learning about it and studying it. You got the human brain and Bitcoin to uh, to keep you up at night yeah. with epiphanies falling uh, falling from yeah the that that should keep yeah both of those topics should keep me busy for the rest of my life so <laughs> and do you see it might seem like a bit of a random question but since you've been interacting with both like the brain neurology and the science behind that and then Bitcoin and the psychological kind of effects that we see people having. Where do you sit like um, in the middle of that, just watching all of this play out? And can you tie the two together? I think it's interesting to look at Bitcoin in terms of its decentralized structure. And you can, if you, if you look hard enough, you can try to relate it to the structure of the brain, how you have, decentralized neurons interconnected with one another that alone might not give you a lot of information, but in a certain pattern connected with one another actually reveal a lot of information, whether it's emotional or intelligence, whatever it is, you can gain a lot of insights from that. And I do see the 
Bitcoin network as this sort of hive mentality of interconnected uh, cyber hornets, if as Michael Saylor calls it, you know, so it's, it's just this network that keeps growing, making new connections. It inches its way into finance and then inches its way into insurance companies and corporate balance sheets. And it starts growing and expanding and the connections start growing and expanding. And you see this tight network just almost like a an organism on its own. Um, I always like Brandon Quittam's uh, analogies to mycelium. Um, uh, and uh, I always joke that he, I can't believe he didn't come up with the term spore of value. So really missed out on that one, Brandon. <laughs> that is excellent. That's going to have to be memed. Yeah, a spore of value. Brilliantly. <laughs> So are you practicing at, like actively right now? This is like your day to day. Your your fiat job, if you like, is to counsel people, or you have patients with uh, Alzheimer's, and like yeah, just give us a look into you know the, the the good doctor's work. So the last couple of years have been interesting. Um, I think uh, I kind of found myself in a misalignment with my principles and values and my day-to-day life in clinical medicine because I just felt like I was part of this huge system that I didn't necessarily enjoy or agree with in terms of the large bureaucracy and the middlemen and the insurance companies. So the last couple of years, I've actually been trying to really live a self-sovereign life. And that includes my day-to-day. You know, it's nice to own Bitcoin and have Bitcoin and and have that self-sovereignty, but it doesn't mean much if it doesn't affect your day-to-day life and how you live your life. So the last few years, I've actually taken a lot of time to um, work on data science and machine learning. Um, I actually went back to school for that which was is uh, an interesting experience in, in this day and age. And my hope is to eventually move out of traditional clinical practice, which I'm doing at the moment along with my studying, and have something that's more self-sustainable and self-sovereign for both me and patients. And my overall goal is to is to renew the connection between doctor and patient that's been severed by all these middlemen, insurance companies and drug companies and hospital administration. And I think one of the biggest things that I'm looking forward to is the change that something like Bitcoin could bring to the medical industrial complex. Man, let, I mean, yeah. What, 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 have you seen going on there? I mean, the, you mentioned like this, this nature of, well, first of all, like, where are you practicing? Are you allowed to say, um, can you share with us what, what country you're in at the moment doing this? Yeah, so I'm currently in the UK, but I will be moving back to the United States in a couple months. So I've practiced in both. Um, okay. So I have a little bit of experience in both systems, which is kind of an interesting perspective. 
Yeah, because in the UK, you have like the national health system, whereas in the US, it's all fully down to the person to have their own individual insurance cover for the health care, which you know, costs, as we know, have just been spiraling out of control. Both systems have inherent problems. So what do you see at the moment in the UK with the NHS? I mean, it's just a total mess. I think both have serious problems and both are completely unsustainable and therefore similar reasons in a way. Um, But let me try to explain. So dealing with the UK is, is a little more simple. So I'll start with that one. So the UK is on an NHS system. It's government, fully government funded. Um, there are private. There is private healthcare here in the UK, and you can obtain private healthcare. Though most people opt for the NHS option because it's paid for by their taxes, so it's technically free at point of care. Although it's not free in the grand scheme of things. Um, so the UK ends up having all the problems that you would expect with. Uh, centralization and central decision making. So they have problems with budgeting and rationing. Um, Their technology is very far behind in terms of the computer systems they use and the equipment they use. Um, There's a big discrepancy in terms of the level of care in certain locations. So you'll get much better care, much better doctors in, say, Chelsea and Kensington than you would in a different part of uh, England, even though the NHS system is essentially designed to help alleviate those differences. And then you, you have a lot of downstream issues that I don't think people think about, which is the incentives for everyone involved, the doctors, administrators, and patients. In terms of the doctors, I think the, although income shouldn't be anyone's main concern when going into a field like medicine, the fact that your income is not competitive and you're working for a government agency affects the type of people that would go into something like medicine. Furthermore, the doctors who work in the NHS are usually incentivized to stay in the NHS rather than open their own practice. Some do, but it usually depends on the type of practice that you run and the field that you specialize in. So it really affects your choices in life, the career options you choose, the type of patients you see, all of these things. And then from a patient perspective, this is more of a subconscious long-term view. When you see the NHS and healthcare in general as quote-unquote free and available at all times, You view it differently than you would if it's a service you had to pay for, you had to think about, you had to be careful about. You view your own health differently if you see it that way. 
And so what I've noticed working here is that people see it as a, a right. And because they see it as a right, they have certain expectations and they don't end up taking on the responsibility. And so you see this disconnect between people and their own health. They just expect their health to be taken care of by the state. Now, the U.S. has a whole different type of issue. I wish it was a system that allowed individuals to really pursue the best option on the market, but it's not quite that. It's uh, I've said this before, but it, it's really the worst of both worlds because you have the bureaucracy of socialized medicine, but you don't have the choice of free markets. So... It, essentially it's it's run by insurance companies and pharmaceuticals acting as middlemen and the medical mafia just bullying people bullying doctors and hospital administrators there is no transparency on pricing uh there's no way to actually shop for your insurance for the most part and the worst part is most of the time in fact a super majority of the time your insurance is tied to your employer. So that also affects the way people act because they tend to play it more conservatively. They would rather have the job than pursue other opportunities, take any risks. And also worst case scenario, if they do lose the job, they also tend to lose the health insurance. So this is what happens when you hear all those stories of people racking up these crazy insurance bills? It's because they most likely lost their insurance somehow or another. Either they weren't working or they lost their job. And two, they don't have a chance to negotiate their costs. The insurance companies decide what the costs are. They agree with the hospital administrators. They take the doctors and the patients out of it. And you're, get, you're stuck paying the bill. And they can charge whatever they'd like. And so... It's essentially the worst parts of socialized medicine without any of the interconnectedness that you might get in socialized medicine. So I think in general, what I would say is both systems are in trouble for varying reasons. And I really hope that Bitcoin can make a big difference in terms of changing that. I do think the medical industrial complex is one of the slowest to change out of all the different sectors. So I'm not holding my breath, but we'll see. I'm hopeful. There's, there's two, two paths I want to go down. First of all, I want to go down the path of lifting the lid on the, the pharmaceutical complex, which I clearly was unaware of what was going on, had no clue until friend of ours she's a gp and she opened her own practice and she was telling us about when she opened her own practice the first six months were just batting away pharmaceutical salesmen and they had to basically decide right we will never go out to lunch with the pharmaceutical salesmen and i'm like oh my god that's going on they're like yeah dan you have no idea like this is this is their job and so it suddenly dawned on me that 
this is going on on a huge scale. If this was just one tiny little like insight, what's going on in the hospitals, you know, around the world, and you know, a focus again on the NHS, and then that that just fires off my brain into Bitcoin, and I'm like, wow, the amount of malinvestment, the amount of you know, the the, the carrot and the stick, the incentives are just so misaligned. There's almost it, it. It was really, really shocking, and you know, I, I felt. I mean, I learned this two or three years ago. And I just felt so naive. I, I think uh, people in medicine also have that revelation at some point, hopefully, and they go through the same experience of feeling like. They were sucker punched. I know I did. I think everyone goes into medical school and medicine with good intentions for the most part. And you go in because you think you, you're there to help people and you're there to make a difference in people's lives. And that's all well and good. And you will definitely do that. And you'll have an impact on people's lives. But I know personally that I got very disillusioned while I was in medical school before I even made my way out because I just saw the system and I just saw how it was just aligned to make money for pharmaceuticals and insurance companies mainly and to grow the administrators without giving doctors or patients the tools to actually look after their health. I mean, the, the most public uh, example of pharmaceuticals is probably in the US and specifically with Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which uh, are the manufacturers of Oxycontin. And this was a big scandal over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. And so this is a great example to look at to see how misaligned the incentives really are. So Purdue Pharmaceutical was just basically pushing these doctors to prescribe these very addictive painkiller drugs. And they were doing it through all sorts of ways, kickbacks and, you know, little bonuses and all these different types of things. And at the time, the studies were either not available or heavily manipulated to show that these pharmaceuticals weren't as addictive as they actually were. And eventually, we found out that they were very addictive. So what happened was we had a bunch of people addicted to these prescription opioids that at some point ran out of their prescriptions and would end up turning to street drugs like heroin and other types of opioids to fill that addiction. So if you look at the United States uh, deaths from opioid overdoses, they were skyrocketing. And the same is true, actually, here in the UK. It just happened a couple of years later. So I, I do feel like the US is... <laughs> Is a, ends up being a testing ground for all these different different experiments, partly because it is, in a way, uh, 
more open to experimentation when it comes to these institutions. And that's mostly a good thing, and I will never argue against it. But you also get these negative consequences when you don't have the proper incentives aligned. And then you see it spreading to other places like here in the UK. You've also seen uh, high opioid overdose statistics here in the UK as well. So that's just one example of how misaligned incentives can actually do much more harm than good, especially in a field that's dedicated to health and wellness. It's crazy. It truly is. And when you see these companies, I mean, when you look at it from a business standpoint, like the, the big farmers, they're all publicly listed. They're all just going quarter to quarter. They're all trying to race each other to... I'm going to use air quotes, cure, because I don't think they are trying to cure. I think they're just trying to find, you know, the, the next drug that's going to be the easiest one to sell. <clears throat> um, and, and then it's off to the races. And then that brings in the, like, the whole patent bullshit side of this as well, which is just another whole rabbit hole of like, really disgusting practices. And, and the way I understand it, you you can you cannot patent a natural occurring substance chemical whatever you want to call it in in nature right you you can't patent a leaf for example or a root or something you know something that mm-hmm. you know we know historically from you know chinese uh, medicine or wherever that you know this is good for that and whatever else you cannot patent that but you can patent the substance that you've chemically created in a laboratory, which mimics what that root or you know leaf or piece of bark can do. Like, <laughs> that's right. And then you can you can also you can also hold that patent for ten, sometimes twenty years. So what ends up happening is you can end up charging whatever prices you'd like without competitors being able to develop generic drugs. So that's why you see a lot of these drug prices skyrocket because there is no free market. So someone can't come along and create a competitor to that drug. So you just see they can charge whatever they want. And it's it's a very sad state of affairs because people need those drugs. And so they're stuck and they end up paying those bills. They get into a lot of medical debt and they don't really have a choice. So this is what happens then. As soon as like you get that patent, that company can you know rest on their laurels, right? And all the R and D into that particular symptom or sickness is shelved for ten to twenty years because oh, it's okay. They won the race to that. They've got the patent. Let's move on to something else and win the race for whatever. So then we get into this problem like you were talking about. Wasn't there a, a big case in the U.S. for like um, insulin drugs or like diabetes? Uh, what happened? Yeah, so, so um, I think you're referring to the discussions around EpiPen, mm. which which is essentially an emergency treatment if you have a anaphylactic shock or anaphylactic reaction. So basically, if you have some type of allergic reaction, you could just That's put right. that in your thigh, and then that will help alleviate that. So it is really a very important emergency drug and the consequences of not having that can be very serious you can 
you can die from having allergic reactions. Uh, and it happens quite a bit, actually. So at the time, I, I don't remember the name of the company, but I remember the face of the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the face of the CEO of that company. Um, he had a very punchable face. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember his name or the name of the company either, thankfully, but I do remember <laughs> that, that, oh, what a, it was just a horrible. Yeah. So he, he did what, but, but here's my point. He did what was, he was incentivized to do. Mm-hmm. He took up the prices as much as he could. Even if there was backlash, he kept taking it up because he knew at the end of the day that he could charge whatever he'd like because there wasn't a free market for it. And so this is kind of the point we were getting at. You have to look at the incentives to see the outcome and see the action. Um, and I, I think... I think it was Charlie Munger of all people who said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome, yep. which is kind of ironic that it was Charlie Munger. Um, I just, in a way you can't be too upset with him because he was doing what he's incentivized to do. You would hope someone has moral standards and, and, you know, opts against making that decision. But at the same time, after studying human beings for so long, I'm not terribly surprised that he did that. I'm more s- upset at the system that allows him to do that. Yeah, it's 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 shocking, man. It's it's really um, upsetting. And um, this brings me on to hydroxychloroquine. Have I said it right? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Right. What was going on there from from a doctor's standpoint? I think we've gotten to the age where everything has been politicized and everything is politicized and there is no escaping it, at least for the moment. And that was a strange one for me because normally if you're in a situation where you're discussing a, a new drug or treatment, you tend to have a back and forth with other researchers, other doctors. You look at the studies, you look at the risk profile, you see any side effects. You go through this general process of review and peer review. And before that process even begun, it just took off like a rocket and became immediately politicized. So you didn't have the discussion you would normally have around it. And in medicine, just like in any other field, you have to be able to discuss these things. You have to be willing to say something that maybe is not palatable or maybe um, you're not sure of. You you have to ask the questions to, to get the answers you seek. And so with that one, as soon as Trump said the words, I think <laughs> it was totally out of the realm of medicine and into the realm of politics. And I, I think that continued um, throughout the whole COVID-19 uh, saga. I think everything has been politicized, uh, whether it's masks or lockdowns or or travel restrictions. There is no actual discussion of the 
the medical uh, public health side of things, or even the other consequences, whether they be economic, mental health, emotional health, all these other things. So it, I do feel like people like myself, and there are quite a few other physicians who feel the way I do, we, we feel kind of drowned out at the moment that our voices aren't really being heard if we have some type of nuanced argument. Um, we tend to get uh, buried under the very uh, extravagant and over-the-top arguments one way or another. Either everything is a complete hoax or everything is a scam or or everything needs to be locked down and, and you can never leave your house again. <laughs> there is no nuance. There's Nuance is dead. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Right. It. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just wanted to. Can Can you hear me? Okay. Are you getting any kind of echo? Because my my audio is going a bit strange. No, I can hear you. Okay. Cool. And when when I'm talking, do you see a wavy line going up and down on your side? I do. You do. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. I might not edit that out, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> so i'm a big i'm a big fan of leaving in the uh, technical difficulties i think uh matt and matt and marty are the, probably the best at doing that absolutely absolutely <laughs> uh <clears throat> so then with with what's going on right now when when that that news started hitting that hang on a minute there's this drug here that could be an effective use against uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, virus. Did your spidey senses kind of prick up straight away? And were you thinking, hang on a second, why is this being pushed back against so hard? Because it only takes one Wikipedia research to realize this, this drug has been around since the 50s, I think. And I think it was in the top 10 of the most prescribed drugs up until right up until this point. And even here in France, they illegalized prescribing it. And I think it was in the top five of prescribed drugs up until that point. And it was just like, what the hell is actually going on? Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, hydroxychloroquine is normally used as an anti-malarial drug. And you're right in saying that it's been approved for decades and to gain approval it needs to pass certain standards in terms of its risk profile its safety side effects and so on and so forth so it is a drug that has been approved for quite some time so when this did happen i remember i remember being somewhat familiar with that drug just from medical school but it's not something i normally prescribe so i had to i had to look into it but it's in all of my pharmacology textbooks it's not something new and innovative it's been there it's still there and uh some of my textbooks are pretty old so <laughs> it's not like a, a groundbreaking drug that we we don't know about so i think that was uh a real eye-opening experience for me that even a field like medicine where people's lives are on the line is not safe from being politicized and being used as this political 
baton that just is passed around. I think that uh, it's a a sad state of affairs where even people's lives don't really matter at the end of the day and they just end up becoming some type of statistic that you can use to argue for or against um, certain public health measures or really more governmental uh, measures. And with that one, I think it was the first of many. Uh, I think you can make similar arguments when it comes to masks, lockdowns, travel restrictions, what have you. Um, And you're seeing now that we have enough information, all these studies coming out talking about how lockdowns were not effective and they actually didn't make any significant difference and and all these new studies about masks and questioning their uh, their efficacy. And unfortunately, and fortunately, I, I suppose, real science takes time. So while it was being politicized in the last year, real science was being done behind the scenes. And unfortunately, it takes time for all of that information to be published. And now we're seeing a year on all that information is being published. And all these people who were like myself, who were questioning these decisions and the outcomes of these decisions are being continuously proven right. And it's unfortunate that it takes all of that to get to this point, but it's just the world we live in. Is everyone like your peers, your colleagues, people that you know in the medical profession, What's kind of like the consensus feel about what's been going on the last year with regards to the masks and the lockdowns and the restrictions? Was it kind of like, you know, drink from the Kool-Aid straight up and that's all fine. Let's put these measures in and see what plays out. Or was it just immediate? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll let you go. Have your rent. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'll walk you through, through my timeline and also what I saw from my colleagues and, Mm -hmm. uh, generally other other physicians that I speak to. So I'd say a, around February of March or March of last year, 2020, is when the news cycle really started picking up on uh, COVID and all the things that were happening in, in Wuhan and China. And we started seeing all those images of people, you know, locked in their homes and all these different things. And admittedly i was i was worried at the time i think everyone was was somewhat worried we didn't have that much information we wasn't we weren't sure what was happening and i was worried on two fronts personally um myself and my family but also professionally i still had to go into the hospital i still had to deal with patients i still had so i i was even though i'm not something someone that works with immunology patients or emergency care patients very often I, it still affected me because you, you have patients move in and out of different wards, you cover for other people, so on and so forth. So at the time, the meetings I was sitting in, it felt like we were preparing for Armageddon. I, I, I was, <laughs> the types of meetings I was sitting in, I was worried and I was ready to, uh, either decide if I was going to 
stay there and uh, apparently fight for my life and fight for my patients or walk away. And it really did feel like life or death. I did feel at some point that I was going to have to put my life on the line. That That's the kind of messaging that was getting across. I'd say after about a couple weeks, I realized that that was not the case. It, it, it took... It took me maybe a couple of weeks to kind of see what was happening. We did get more cases. Um, they were generally older people, people with a lot of uh, other medical conditions. And uh, some of them were able to take it on and do well. Some of them not so much. But it, it definitely wasn't a case of uh, Armageddon. I'll tell you that much. Um and I'm the type of person where I uh, I tend to assess these situations and I tend to make my judgments and then form my uh, you know alter my judgments as more information comes in. But I was fairly confident at that point that this was overblown in the sense of the reaction. Although you could argue that it is significant in terms of the effect that it had on on people and lives, and absolutely did. The reaction was completely overblown. And I think from, I'd say, March, maybe beginning of April of last year, I have been fairly um, public about my comments, both um, anonymously and also in my place of work about how I felt about it. I do think that um, it took many other physicians a few months to really uh, see what I saw. And I do think a lot of it was also because they tend to be more plugged into mainstream media and the news cycle and the general politics that were surrounding it. Um, especially my U S colleagues who may have been leaning a certain way, either against the president or for the president, they would take certain sides based on that political stance. And so I don't think doctors are immune from from that. Not at all. I think that this last year has really um, opened my eyes to <laughs> how flawed the reasoning could be from some of the smartest people I've ever come across. Um, it's quite interesting to see people being so intelligent in one particular narrow field and then just being completely oblivious when it comes to reasoning from first principles on just very basic concepts. Um, so I'd say in the last few months, I've really seen a tide uh, change in terms of people um, changing their opinions. And unfortunately, not all of them are very vocal about it, which I hope to change. But I, I do see that happening more and more as it becomes more publicly palatable, I would say. Um, as always, I, I do feel like <laughs> I'm the outspoken one uh, and I have no... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't really care much for how people view me so long as I feel like I, I make my opinions on a sound basis and I, I felt a certain way for a year now, and I just feel like a lot of my colleagues are catching up and they're now 
starting to see what I saw. And so hopefully, I think we're seeing it now in the next couple months, you'll see people start to change their public opinion as well as their private opinion, which will make a big difference. And my hope is that if something similar happens in the future, that people can take this experience and learn the lessons they need to learn so that when it happens again, if it happens again, or if something similar happens again in a different vein, that they're able to reason their way out of it a lot sooner than they did this time. And perhaps that's naive of me, but I really hope that's the case. Man, it's going to happen again, right? They have the button. They can push the button whenever they want. <laughs> they just hit the button and everybody goes back and locks themselves in their homes. It's the, the, That power is intoxicating and they've got it. They have it. There's no coming back from from that power. I also th- I also think I also think that they might have been surprised with how well it worked and how easily they were able to accomplish what they accomplished. Because quite frankly, even I was surprised by it. I expected more people to react more strongly sooner than they did, and uh, I I was very disappointed with how long it took people to react. Um, people were fairly willing to give up pretty much all of their freedoms with no real proof that it would make any discernible difference. And that was a frightening thing to see. Freedoms and livelihoods, businesses. Like, yeah, I'll I'll shut my business. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) It's, it absolutely, it boggles the mind. But one thing I want to ask you about is, what we get fed on the mainstream media to what you actually see going down in the belly of the beast must just be so vastly different. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Like for example, when, when you would see, I mean, we were fed uh, so, so often that people are lying around in corridors, for example, completely overwhelmed deluge of people. People are just dying all over the place. What was the feel inside the hospitals? Did you did you work in one of these hospitals that was overwhelmed? Uh, I think very few people worked in these hospitals that were extremely overwhelmed. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I'd say is, so uh, what I'd I, say I know is exactly uh, what you're saying. These, yeah. <laughs> what I'd say is these media companies they they thrive on getting a rise out of your emotions. Uh, and the best way to get a rise out of your emotions is fear. And honestly, they were very successful for a few months, at least those images of, you know, people in Italy, you know, overwhelming the hospitals and, you know, the people being locked in their homes in Wuhan, they worked. They they got the message across. Whatever the message was, they got it across. They really put the fear of God into people. They did. And uh, they put it into people that really hadn't experienced anything serious for decades, I would say. I mean, you could argue that things like 9-11 were serious, obviously, but it was very concentrated to new york and america it wasn't a global event we we've never experienced a world war in our lives we've never had that type of experience that's so interconnected and affects all of us and so it was something new and 
it worked. Whatever it was, it worked. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I want, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, um, you know, people shouldn't take their own personal precautions and they shouldn't do their own research and see what affects their health and, and how they can help improve that. But I do think that the, the media played their role. They really pushed a certain narrative and hand in hand with governments around the world, they restricted freedoms, they took away livelihoods, and they pumped a lot of money into the system. A lot of money. <laughs> Bingo. I remember having a conversation with, with John Vallis back in March. And like you, I was feared up enough to have gone out and done the done the panic shopping. And you know, I, I, I was like, you know, telling my wife and kids, like, you know, we just got to hunker down for a couple of weeks, I guess. And, but my wife and I, we'd been through SARS in Singapore, right? And we'd seen that just fizzle out. Okay. And you, you can't tell me, no one even remembers the year that even happened. I can't even pick it out of thin air. But one day we woke up in Singapore and it's like, oh, hell, sh you know, oh, hell's breaking loose in Hong Kong. People are dying. And then, you know, people in uh, in China and whatever else, pouring yourself another beer. I like it. I'm going to have to text Lauren to bring one in. <laughs> um, so we'd been through something similar, like the, the SARS. And I remember every day I went to work, nothing was shut down, nothing. You'd go to work, they put little plastic uh, covers around the the the, the cab drivers. Um, we weren't even wearing masks, man. And each day at work, the the HR team would go around and take everybody's temperature, morning and afternoon. And if anybody was running high, it was like you know straight home, or you know, or if you want, go get yourself um, to the doctors. It was it was your choice, and it came and it went. And you can't tell me we weren't. Everyone was flying around in those days as well, right? It was still a globalized, it, it, there was something really odd here happening. And it was when we saw Macron's first or second speech, I can't remember which one. And he said about five times, this is war, this is war, this is war. And immediately it's like, ping, this is fucked up. This has been politicized. This is just absolutely despicable what's going on. And I, I've never been able to look back since. And it's just... Well, he, you've had that narrative pushed in different ways. So here in the UK, you know, it was the flatten the curve, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve and do it for the NHS. You know, you don't want the NHS to be overwhelmed. So you need to do it for the NHS. And... Uh, I have to say, as an American living here, that was a very bizarre experience. People, people were out outside or just out of their windows at 8 p.m. every night, you know, banging pots and pans and clapping for the NHS. Like, it was very cult-like behavior. It, it was bizarre to me. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing how you can craft this narrative. And if you just keep pushing it and you have the the means to push it, like mainstream media and all, all these organizations to push it, you can get across whatever message you'd like, and it will probably stick, at least with a significant enough of the population that it will make a difference. How much 
has the NHS spent of taxpayers' money advertising COVID? This makes they, me sick. They built an entire hospital that didn't treat a single patient. What? Are you aware of this? No. They. You should look it up. I think it was called a Nightingale Hospital. It did not treat a single patient, and it closed down. <laughs> what? Yes. Where? In London. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's true. I swear it's true. I'll send you the links. I'll post it at some point. Malinvestment. Again, <laughs> it comes back yes. to right. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to just laugh at the NHS. The U.S. did the same thing. I don't know if you remember, but at some point in New York, they brought an entire Navy ship to to New York uh, to, to treat patients. That also didn't treat uh, any patients. Oh, my God. I Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I think I heard... I was listening to another podcast and this came up, but... Again, it comes back to incentives. And I'm not exactly anywhere near close to understanding how the American health system works. But I I remember listening to a podcast and they were talking about a certain amount of funding was released to the hospital if if you were deemed, if it was deemed necessary to put a patient on the um, respiratory uh, apparatus. So there's a there's a lot of problems with incentives when it came to COVID. And this is something I have been banging on about for a year. I want to be clear, I'm not accusing people of committing any type of fraud or fudging the numbers. I'm just speaking purely on incentives. If you're a hospital that is incentivized by increased funding for COVID patients, then you're going to do more COVID tests and you are going to record more COVID patients. Whether it's essential or not, you're going to try to acquire more funding. If you're getting more funding for putting people on respirators, you would hope that people would look at the research and see that putting on people on on respirators actually had a worse outcome than people that didn't, and they would follow that guidance. But if the incentives are misaligned and you actually are able to gain more funding for whatever, for any hospital administration or any hospital costs for putting people on respirators, then you might be more inclined to do so. Now, This is not me accusing people of medical malpractice or or making up numbers. I just look at it as a simple human interaction. If you're more incentivized to choose one action of or over the other, chances are you will choose that action if you don't have the consequences for choosing that action, the negative consequences, I mean. And most of these hospitals, I can speak personally for several hospitals I've worked at, they don't have the negative consequences of really extensive review boards in terms of looking specifically at COVID-19. They might have it for other mortality data, whether it's cardiovascular or respiratory, but it's for something that's fairly novel 
like COVID-19, there are no regulations and guidelines for testing and reporting that are standard globally, internationally. People use different PCR cycles. People use different um, death certificate standards. I've seen personally tons of patients being signed as COVID deaths that were not COVID deaths. They were patients with COVID that were marked as COVID deaths. Maybe it was heart failure or respiratory failure or some other type of failure. So long as they had COVID, they were marked as a COVID death. Why? Why not? You get incentivized if someone is a COVID death, if you're a hospital. This is the problem. And this is why from the very beginning, you can find tweets of mine that I said, I don't trust any of the numbers that are coming out from the hospitals. None of these make sense. Not from what I'm seeing. And, you know, of course, all my evidence is anecdotal. That's that's the problem. Every one person has anecdotal information from the specific hospital or hospital networks that they work at. But seeing the way these things were reported, seeing the way these things were tested, I never felt comfortable with any of the statistics that were reported. And we've seen now, <laughs> miraculously, as uh, we just inaugurated a new president, they changed the guidelines for testing. So they, uh, so they changed the number of PCR cycles that are required uh, when you test COVID samples. And so you get less COVID cases. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not terribly complicated. <laughs> it, it's just a, there's a part of statistics and public health that is unfortunately pseudoscience. And I, I hate to say it as someone that personally loves statistics and public health and the general concept, you could essentially make prediction models that can show anything so long as you choose the right type of data to base it on. And that's partly what we saw here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Imperial College and their prediction data on COVID. They expected 2 million people to die in the U.S., in the first couple months, it ended up being orders of magnitude less. I think it was a few, maybe 10,000, 20,000. And, and so these prediction models that these universities use is what guides these government agencies, or at least what supports these government agencies to make these decisions. And so you just have this awful mix of academic institutions, mainstream media institutions, and governments all trying to fill a somewhat similar type of agenda and you get people like me and you stuck in the middle where we are just expected to give up our livelihoods. We're just expected to do what's right for the NHS or for, you know, the war we're at, as Macron said. So it's just, this is the culmination of fiat degeneracy for decades and decades. This is exactly what you would expect to happen if you understood the money. Man, I'm getting triggered. It's <laughs> it's just, but when you look at it on a like a, a personal basis, what people mm -hmm. have had to give up, and yeah someone listening might think oh well it's okay we can all just stay home and you know as long as everybody follows the rules we'll all be all fine we'll all be fine and whatever else it's like no like you know we, we are lucky in the fact that 
we've not had any touch wood here we've not had any critically important health issues with us or anyone in our extended family so we've only missed the things like milestone birthdays uh christmas um you know family leisure time and travel and you know yeah we can bitch and whine but some people man like they've they've got loved ones in hospital loved ones that are you know at the end of their lives they've missed funerals they've missed saying goodbye they've missed all of this it's it's so wrong that it's just you know it, it you look at a country like Thailand, I think Thailand has 70 registered deaths of COVID. They locked the whole damn country down. It's still locked down. This is just madness. That country survives on tourism. What are those people going to do? What are the long-term effects of this? Canada is just another completely and utterly nonsensical, crazy place right now. The UK is. House arrest in the UK. And they, they pick out an arbitrary date in the future. Yeah. That, oh, yeah, we'll test again on, like, I don't know what it is, right? Is it sometime in May where we might let you out? Of I've, I've completely stopped paying attention. <laughs> like, I, I just walk out of the house whenever I want and I, I go wherever I want. <laughs> is it, at some point, as an individual, you have to make the decision to say that's enough and, and you just go about your day and do what you need to do. I think I've I've been that way for months and uh, I, I have to be honest, a few months ago, people gave me strange looks all the time uh, for walking around, going to stores, doing the things I normally do. But lately I do see people, you know, changing their tune and uh, a little more normal. Um, but it's completely opposite to the message you're hearing in terms of, Oh, we, there's a new strain and there's more lockdowns and all this sort of stuff. It's, the new strain is a great it's one. the virus that never ends <laughs> yeah the new strain yeah they they have that button too right just like, hit the new strain button whenever we want pick a country and you know put that you know you had brazil didn't you recently yeah we had a strain from brazil so that was reason to lock down again for another few months with no <laughs> real evidence of anything <laughs> Am I right in thinking that a virus is going to mutate itself and become less harmful over time? Yes. Because that's that's what viruses do. Thank you. That, like that's GCSE that's, biology. Isn't that's it? what viruses do. They mutate. Right. It is, and also they they tend to be most likely. What will happen with COVID is it will become endemic, so it will essentially live with us forever. Mm -hmm. And it'll be something like the flu where you don't have necessarily a vaccine that just gets rid of the flu and you'll never get the flu again. It's just you'll have new strains that come every few years. And maybe if you're someone that's in a vulnerable population, like an elderly person or if you're immunocompromised, you'll, you can take a vaccine that's very well tested, but it's not something that everyone would or should take. And I think that's a reasonable outlook and a reasonable response to the situation. But it seems like suggesting that <laughs> would be shouted down upon even now. So oh shit, Let's maybe, go I, there. maybe I shouldn't speak of it. Let's go down. You, you just <laughs> opened it up, man. You just ripped the manhole cover off that vaccine rabbit hole. 
I mean, you put the word mandatory. Vaccines are a weird one. Yeah. Yeah, this this is this is what's what actually worries me. If we start inching towards I mean we're hurtling towards medical tyranny, that is uh a box that I do not want to open and I I think would be devastating in terms of liberties and bodily autonomy and just autonomy in general. Because once you go down that path, you've essentially given up everything. You have no choice. You have no say in any decisions, even with the thing that really is you. It's it's your yourself, your body. And if you don't have a choice over that, then you don't really have a choice over anything. So I am very, very, very concerned with the rhetoric that is uh, flying around right now in terms of vaccine passports and uh, needing all of this to travel and, and go into bars and restaurants. I am very, very concerned. But at the same time, in a way, uh, I know there will be black markets that develop for these things. So I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm terribly concerned because I, I can see that becoming uh, a fairly common and lucrative thing. But uh, the general idea does concern me. It's being spun in such a way that if everybody doesn't take the vaccine, then the you know COVID's going to be with us forever. And I just can't believe people think that way. So, you know, from a medical standpoint, can you please ally people's fears? Well, there's certain things you have to look at. You have to look at the virus itself over time, how it mutates and the reproducibility of the virus, how quickly it spreads, um, how effective it is at compromising your health. And these things all change over time. This is not a static thing. You have to assess it over time. And the second thing is looking at the treatment options, both in terms of, say, therapeutics, once you get the vaccine, or preventative measures. uh, Sorry, therapeutics, once you get the um, virus and vaccines that would hopefully prevent you from getting the virus. So there are two sides to that coin, right? So when you're looking at therapeutics, hopefully the longer this goes on, the therapeutics improve. And even if you were to get sick, you'd have much better options. And I think that has been the case. If you look at, say, the, I mean, a very, very prominent cases, like when President Trump got sick, for example, uh, he had available therapeutics. I think he took Regeneron or, or some type of... Uh, antibody treatment, and he was able to recover fairly quickly. Now, obviously, in medicine and public health, one person doesn't make statistics. So you have to look at it in totality. But in general, we have a much better handle of our treatment options now than we did, say, a year ago. And I think that will continue to improve as we understand more about the virus itself and what it affects and how we can um, effectively treat people who have uh, tested positive. 
And the other side of it is the vaccine side. Now, vaccines are very interesting because it depends on the type of virus. So this virus, uh, this is going to trigger some people, but it's it would be somewhat like the flu in that it it would mutate over time. You'd have different strains. So any vaccine that you come up with is not going to be 100% effective for COVID-19 as a whole. Most likely, it will end up becoming an endemic virus that loses its potency over time, similar to flus. But there will be some years where the strains might be more, you know, detrimental than other years. We, we don't know yet. We can't make any, uh, any firm decisions on that. So in terms of vaccines, personally... I would be very wary taking taking something myself that was rushed to market the way it was over the last year. That's just my personal opinion. If other people feel that uh, the risk-benefit profile works for them, then so be it. But I am personally a fairly young person, and I think most people under the age of, say, 55 should really seriously consider the potential side effects of something like that. Um, and I think that this will evolve over time. I do hope that in the next, say, six months to a year, there is going to be some type of reevaluation of the way we, we initially addressed it, the lockdown measures, the masks, the travel restrictions, and then, of course, the vaccines. And I think this is going to happen on a small basis, decentralized basis. People like us speaking about it, um, you know, doctors speaking among themselves, epidemiologists speaking among themselves. And you'll slowly start to see the literature come out about all the negative consequences of these things. And you're starting to see it now. I, I mean, I've read a couple of papers just in the last week alone of all the potential negative side uh, side effects or consequences of say lockdowns. And these are all things that people like myself and people on Bitcoin Twitter have been talking about, you know, think about all the negative health side effects, the alcoholism, the suicide, the overdose deaths, and all these different things, the, um, you know, the different types of abuse with people staying home, you know, the the people losing their jobs, their livelihoods, the economic consequences. These are all things that for some reason, obviously, or probably agenda driven are completely ignored when discussed in public. And I hope that people don't just buy the narrative 100% anymore without questioning. If that's the conclusion you can come to individually, then so be it. But I hope that people just start to question things in general because, my God, the last year really worried me in terms of that. Oh, my God, yes. There's nothing more scarce than than people questioning the narrative. That's that's way scarcer than Bitcoin. You know, there seems to be... (laughs) It's the only only thing scarcer than Bitcoin. (laughs) How has it affected your work with what you do with with Alzheimer's? How's this this last year and a half of this? Well, 
this is to see these are the things I experience on a personal basis that I try to get across to people is that it really affects the way people approach their own health and people approach healthcare in general. I can't tell you how many people I've had over the last year not come into their usual appointments because they were afraid because they, they didn't want to get sick and they missed their appointments. And it, sometimes it has a detrimental effect to your health. And in my field, I think the, the long-term uh, health conditions like Alzheimer's might not be as apparent, but it does have an effect in terms of people reaching their milestones, making sure they're on track, making sure they have medication reviews, so on and so forth. And it also can have um, impact in terms of short-term acute conditions. So let's say this has happened several times. I, I have experienced it myself. There have been several people that I know of that were suspected of having a stroke and they chose not to come into hospital because they were afraid or their family member was afraid. I know of several people that have actually died because partly because they didn't come in for treatment. And I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one. I know several other doctors that say work in cardiology that had patients that had a suspected MI, a heart attack, and they chose not to come in because they were afraid. Same, lots of different types of accidents and all types of things that people would normally come in for that they chose not to come in because they were afraid or their family member was afraid. And this, you can apply this to pretty much anything. One of the most interesting thing is to see the number of cancer screening appointments, people canceling all these cancer screening appointments that would have identified cancers early on and that were able to treat. And these are things that we're not going to see the outcome of for five to 10 years, maybe even longer. Because let's say you have someone that was going to a cancer screening appointment, but they decided to cancel their appointment because of all the, the fear that of going in. So instead of getting a cancer identified and treated, they would instead wait, have that cancer grow, perhaps maybe it gets to another stage, and then it becomes less treatable, and then it becomes a bigger problem. And who knows, it could cut down on that person's life. It could be life-threatening. And I've heard so many stories of people missing appointments or not coming in that, yes, it's anecdotal, but it it's just, it's infuriating because um, for something that's done, quote unquote, to protect the health of people, it's, it's really harming the health of people. And this is, this comes back to you know, stay home, save the NHS, right? Uh, because people had this picture right. in their minds of hospitals being completely overrun. So they're either one, well, you know, I shouldn't go in if I just got a niggly plane. You know, they're, they're playing on the, the, in the UK, they're playing on the, the British stiff upper lip, you know, I, I'll be all right. You know, it's just an ache or something. I'll, you know, stay home, save the NHS, whatever the slogan was that they, they dreamt up. Or like you said, pure fear. Like there's no way in hell we're going into that infested place of like certain death. And it's nonsense. 
yeah, it's uh, it's very disheartening to be able to see these things and reason your way through these things and then see people who mean well most of the time suffer the consequences. Now, I, I do believe that a lot of people who follow the guidelines and and support all the different measures i do think a lot of people do mean well and this is this is the part that that hurts is mm. these are the people and their family members that are getting hurt by these things um whether it's economic consequences or health outcomes and it's just sad to see it is sad to see because i do feel like the adults who actually know what they're talking about or have left the room or at least are not getting the chance to speak about these different things. And you just have the uh, animals running the zoo. And when the animals run the zoo, they can do whatever they like. And there is no logical reasoning behind it. There's just agenda. Yeah. And when it's just agenda driven, then this is what you get. It's so, it's so true. I mean, people out there, they're just trying to, you know, do the best that they can make the best decisions and if you were to leave them alone, people generally are amazing human beings. Like they, they, they don't need to be told what mm-hmm. to do. And they will, you know, human beings, I believe, we, we, we're just kind of like um, preordained to help. You know, you, you see a fellow human being and generally you are going to go and try and help that person if you can. And it just seems as though we've just been... St- you know, split, put in our little pockets and don't talk to each other. This is the thing about, you know, pubs and bars and cafes and restaurants, right? How is it we can do everything else except go to a pub, bar, cafe, or restaurant? It's because don't want us socializing and chatting to each other. It's not about spread of disease. Yeah. Yeah. It's just about... It's very dehumanizing. Yeah. It... I remember here in the UK, they uh, for for a brief couple of weeks they lifted some restrictions on pubs, and then they said you could only be in a pub and stay in a pub if you're eating uh, a meal, and so then there was a debate as to what qual- qualifies as a meal, and so people were arguing if a Scotch egg was a meal, and that became a big. <laughs> That became a big point in the media. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. Do you think COVID recognizes scotch egg as a meal or not a meal? And then it decides, well, actually, it's a meal. So I'm just going to back off here. These people are clearly eating. So let me back off and then I'll come back later. (laughs) It, It makes no sense. Well, here, mate, in France, they've decided that COVID only comes out hunting for you after six o'clock. So you better be home by six o'clock <laughs> because that's when they, that's well, when that, the that's a, for you. Well, that's a funny thing with the curfews. I, I always found it so funny because at some point here in the UK, they set a curfew of, at 10 PM and either intentionally or unintentionally, um, maybe they didn't realize that by setting a curfew at 10 PM, that means every single person is leaving at 10 PM, which means there are groups of people congregating everywhere at 10 p.m., including the public transit systems, including all the places that you don't want people congregating. So in effect, 
your curfew laws made everything 10 times worse than it would have been if you had just left it. And this is kind of like a general point that I have that if they had just left it from the beginning and done nothing, I can guarantee you that it would have had a much better outcome on all fronts, health outcomes, economic outcomes, personal outcomes, business outcome, everything. And that's, isn't it funny? Like, I think, I think part of it is we as humans want to feel like we're in control. So when we, uh, you know, come up against the force of nature, whether it's a virus or, you know, a, some type of weather event, we, we do want to feel like in, we're in control. So maybe we put on a mask and feel like that, that helps us. Maybe we lock down and we feel like that helps us. But at the end of the day, you have to reason with yourself and realize that we are human. We are vulnerable. We are going to die someday. You have to accept the reality that you're given and you have to live with it and hopefully try not to control other people's lives in the process of doing so. Sociopaths, man. That's the problem. That's that's, that's the biggest problem because they do believe they can control everything that you just said. And it's their kind of god-given right or something it's just mental all right let's go down your bitcoin rabbit hole story what the hell pulled you in and and how and why (laughs) and when and uh i usually do these earlier in the show we're only touching on this an hour and a half in this is crazy this has been a great discussion though well i i've got nothing to do today so i i have time uh as your your daughter pointed out I'm, I'm not very busy so uh <laughs> so in terms of my bitcoin rabbit hole so i do think my personal experiences of growing up in that difficult situation really affected the way i viewed money like money was always a problem growing up for us um you know my mom was a single mom she did what she could and i'm thankful for her and all she did but at the same time we just weren't able to do things that most other people would so I always grew up in this environment where I just always wondered like why do certain people have so much more money is it what what is it you know and then as I grew older and you know I went to high school and college I started getting interested in in politics and I started immediately going down the libertarian route um, and specifically Ron Paul. So the Ron Paul 2008 campaign was like my first real big awakening in terms of um, politics, maybe a little earlier with other world events that happened with like the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. But really in terms of um, ideas, I think that's when I first had my first, eye-opening experience and I started questioning things and uh, I learned a lot about the Fed. I learned a lot about uh, money printing and I was honestly going down the gold bug route because at that time, Bitcoin was fairly new. Um, You know, Ron Paul's campaign was in 2008. I'd say next couple of years I was doing my reading. Bitcoin was still not prominent enough for me to ever notice it and no one i knew was in the cypherpunk community or really into tech and computers so it was totally out of my out of my picture and then 
I remember this very clearly. In 2012, I was traveling. Uh, I, w- I won't say where specifically for OPSEC reasons, as if that matters at this point. But um, I was in a developing nation with one of my friends. Let's just put it that way. And we were at a bank and we were exchanging U.S. dollars for the local currency. And my friend at the time, who was uh, a very, very hardcore libertarian slash anarchist, uh, said, oh, you know what? If if we just used Bitcoin, we'd, we wouldn't have to do this. We wouldn't have to exchange money. And I was like, wait, what? What, what do you mean? So he he didn't know enough about Bitcoin to really pull me in to the rabbit hole, but it was enough to get me intrigued. So like everyone else, I kind of ignored it for a while and I just moved on with my life. And I'd say it took me about another year or so, maybe a year and a half to really start digging in and trying to understand it. Um, Thankfully, it happened right before I was going to make some big decisions in terms of going into gold because I was down the libertarian route and I was reading about the Fed and sound money and the gold standard. So I was essentially primed for Bitcoin because of my background in terms of reading libertarian things, my personal life, uh, understanding sound money from a gold perspective. And then just generally having this very mm, independent, rebellious streak. I just didn't have the uh, understanding of Bitcoin itself. So it took me some time to really understand it. And then once I understood it, like most people, I just became obsessed with it. It just, it, it started taking over my life in terms of like what I wanted to read about, what I wanted to talk about. And I will say... There were certain, I would say there was a three to four year stretch in my life, probably from 2014 to about like 2018 or even recently, maybe even longer than four years, where my friends and family thought I went insane. Uh, they really thought I went insane because I was, I wasn't, I, I was doing this all while in medical school and, you know, trying to pursue a career in medicine. So it just seemed like, oh, he's lost it. Like he's really lost it. <laughs> and I just remember so many days of, you know, being on the wards and like during my breaks, just reading all sorts of things, whether it was like, uh, you know, some Pierre Rochard article or Goldstein stuff or later on Parker Lewis and all that stuff. And I just remember thinking, like, why isn't anyone paying attention to this? This seems important. And I just had to accept the fact that people would get it eventually. And I think we're kind of getting to that point now. We're not quite there yet. I still see uh, a lot of people, you know, with the same FUD narratives that I first heard eight years ago. But I do feel more and more vindicated in the sense that I have people that I haven't spoken to in five years call me up lately and say, man, I remember you talking about Bitcoin when we, were, when we were on the wards and we were doing this and I thought you were crazy. Like I thought, I thought you'd <laughs> lost it. I thought, and I just said, yeah, I know. I, 
I kind of understand it from your perspective now. I must have looked like a lunatic, but uh, you know, it's just funny to see that that flip um, happening now. But yeah, my my Bitcoin rabbit hole was just essentially my personal life and just being primed for it, thanks to Ron Paul and libertarianism in general, and then thankfully being being uh, let's say lucky enough to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole versus the gold rabbit hole, because that would have been devastating if I had gone down the gold rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine, imagine being a, uh, a, a an unshakable disciple of Peter Schiff right now. That would be a pretty oh bad God. place to be. It, it's, it's random. Right? That is the worst place to be. Oh my God. It's just anyway, <laughs> but Tying this back to, to what's been going on the last year and a half, and you know, if it has this whole COVID thing has been politicized uh, and is some kind of agenda, like we we kind of feel it is, it could be the biggest own goal in history, right? Because this has just woken so many people up to they're printing how much money actually is just being just pumping. They're sending me money through the front door. Like, you know, if, if you can just print money, why do we have to pay you taxes? I don't understand that disconnect because that narrative is huge and that is real. That's tangible. People have started asking questions and they're like, nah, something doesn't make sense. If they're not questioning the COVID, they're definitely questioning like the, the, the legacy financial system. And why are they pushing me into more and more debt? That doesn't seem fair but then they are they are kind of like compensating me but that i all i want to do is run my business like you know why can't they get the fuck out of the way and let me do my business it could be man that they, they they could be orange pilling many more millions than you know a small little <laughs> podcast two dudes talking about life on uh you know that this is going to reach maybe two thousand people <laughs> so there is an orange lining. I, I I do think that it's really funny that you know you can fr- you can print one to two trillion dollars a year and no one will notice, but then all of a sudden when you have something like COVID hit, or at least a reaction to COVID hit, and you have to print tens of trillions of dollars and you have to do it globally, it gets people to react whether they're interested in it directly or not. There's no way to ignore that. I remember getting a text from someone saying, wait, are they really going to make two $1 trillion coins? I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> and I actually didn't know how to respond because who knows? Maybe they, they were going down that route at that point. It was getting ridiculous. And I had people who were never interested in money and Bitcoin reach out to me and say, all right, I need to learn. I need to, you know, I need to own some. I need to learn about it. I need to know what I'm doing here because my business is on the line. My family's on the line. Our wealth is on the line. And, you know, a great example of this is Michael Saylor. He totally ignored Bitcoin until last year. Mm-hmm. And he really didn't need any reason to pay attention to it. You know, he's got enough money. He's got enough. He has his business and He's very busy, so he has no need to pay attention to it. But all of a sudden, when that hits, you can't ignore it. And that kind of awakening 
I think, happened on an individual basis, whether you're a billionaire CEO or just a regular dude, you knew something was wrong. (laughs) You knew something was messed up and you needed to try to do your best to figure your way out of this thing. It's certainly, man. Right. I, w- I want to touch before before we sign off. Uh, I want to touch on on Alzheimer's with mm-hmm. you because this is obviously something that you you've studied very very closely and are exposed to every day. And this is, I know you tell me, is this a, a growing concern? Is this becoming more and more common? And you know, and why? Well, so. I think it is growing more and more common in terms of the the volume of people, like the total number of people that have Alzheimer's. And that's partly because of the population dynamics. So we're having a lot more older people who are not having as many kids. So you end up having a lot of older people who actually don't have people to take care of them. So they get put into the healthcare system put into nursing homes. And that is definitely a problem that we're dealing with. So uh, my message to Bitcoiners is have more kids. Um, <laughs> and go get busy guys. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think Alzheimer's in general is really interesting because the, the brain is one of the final frontiers in terms of our knowledge level. It's like the deep sea. We, we know so little about it. And all the neuroscience research that's happened on the brain and diseases of the brain, like Alzheimer's, have been happening in the last 40 to 50 years for the most part. So it's a bit like Bitcoin in the sense that it is such a rapidly evolving field. You'll get new things every every month, every year that you wouldn't get in other types of fields that are already well established. So I don't know what the future holds in terms of Alzheimer's. And I don't know what the potential treatments are because they're, they don't exist at the moment. There are only some treatments that in some studies slow it down, but we don't really have much information. I do think something that will play a big part is um, your diet and metabolic health in general. And I think that's something that has been studied in association with Alzheimer's and other diseases only recently. So it's just a prediction, but I do think that will play a big part. And I think the studies will show that, but it's hard to say anything for sure. The only thing I can say is if you are worried about it, or if you have family members who have had Alzheimer's and and you're worried about getting it yourself is to try to stay as sharp as possible to a lot of reading, a lot of learning outside of your field of expertise, learn new things all the time, learn new instruments, learn, read all types of things, learn all types of things. And then also take care of your health in, uh, in terms of what you eat, eat clean, no processed foods, no sugar. And at the end of the day, there's a good chance you'll be able to avoid something like that uh, for the most part. You, you can only control what you can control. So do your best in controlling what you can actually control and then leave the rest up to fate. And hopefully it should work out. Wow. And for, you know, I, I should have asked you to do this at the beginning, but for, for me, Alzheimer's, as I understand it, is sporadic 
and complete memory loss. Is that a kind of good way, like overview of it, or is it a lot deeper than that? How would you explain it to someone that is not completely fully up to date on what it is or hasn't experienced a family member who, who might have suffered from it? So it tends to be a progressive type of dementia and it tends to affect your memory. Now there are different patterns, but usually the pattern is it affects your short-term memory and then it eventually can affect your long-term memory. And this is when it gets very um, difficult to deal with mostly from a family member's perspective, because it starts with things like, say, forgetting where you put something or forgetting you had an appointment or simple things here and there, which are problematic, but don't necessarily have huge effects on your life. But if you live with it long enough and it progresses fast enough, you can get to the point where you can forget the names and faces of your own children and you can forget names and faces of your friends. And that is devastating. That is devastating to know someone your entire life and for them to not remember you at all and to have no memory or recollection of it is devastating mostly for the friends and family. So it's really a a disease that affects not just the patient, but everyone around them. Yeah, man, that's, um, fingers crossed something. I, I, yeah, I, I don't want to have to ever see that. And, um, if anybody's listening that, uh, has had to go through that then um, yeah, I, heart goes out. It's, um, and this is what you deal with every day. So you, you're seeing people that you're seeing the effects of people with it and the effects it has on their closest family. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, I think this is a good general point to make. I think, you know, I complain about medicine and the medical industrial complex all the time. And I, I don't think that will ever stop, but I'm really grateful for my experiences in medicine because I think being in the field gives you something that's very different than being in any other field. You gain a perspective of what really is important in life because you see people at their most vulnerable. You see people at the end of their lives. You see people struggling to cope with their humanity and the fact that we are fragile beings and this life is not guaranteed and it ends for everyone. So you really get to see what's important. And from my experiences, from dealing with people towards the end of their life or, or people and their family members, what, uh, what I've seen is that the things that matter are really family and shared connections with, with people. That's all that matters. I've never seen someone, you know, on their way out, talk about how they wish they worked more or talk about how much more money they wish they had or never. That's never come up once at any point. It's always people wanting to be surrounded by their family, people talking about the memories they had and people just sharing in that lived experience. And so I guess this is hopefully, you know, a lesson to to any of these Bitcoiners that, that might be listening and 
you know, I'm one of them. You know, it's it's nice to have the wealth. It really is. It, it's nice. You know, money is a tool and it helps buy you things, including, you know, some safety and insurance. And it's nice to have to not worry about those things, especially for, for someone like me that grew up in the environment I grew up in. It is nice to have that. And I really appreciate that. But at the same time, if you acquire that money and you don't have anyone to share it with in terms of sharing experiences and 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 finding love whether it's your partner or your children or your family members then it's meaningless it really is it at the end of the day it's it, it's not it's not going to account for much so better yourself you know learn learn how to become the best version of yourself you know the way i the way i was able to get out of my situation if i'm being honest was i basically now this is going to sound kind of crazy but i basically had to invent a person i had to look at myself 5 years in the future and invent that person and then just try to aim to be that person and then i would just keep doing that every Every year, I would just say, okay, what do I look like in five years? Like, where do I want to be? And then I would just try to go there. And in that process, I learned a lot about myself. I struggled a lot. At the end of the day, I accomplished a lot. But also, I was able to share that experience with the people around me, including people in Bitcoin. And I think that's what makes it all worthwhile these conversations that we're having the people that we share this experience with you know all the dumb memes on bitcoin twitter that that's what it's about it, it really is it really is and uh you know i hope people appreciate the the experience as much as they ex- appreciate the the gains <laughs> yeah it's it's so true man it's like if anyone's listening if you're not getting bullish or if you're just starting this, just start stacking sats and, you know, try and try and envision yourself in five or 10 years time, because that's what I did too. And I, I wrote a pyramid down and at the top of my pyramid, you know, what did I want to get in, in five or 10 years time? It was just like, bam, financial freedom. I just want financial freedom. How do I work that back down? And, you know, what are the steps I need to take? And of course, Bitcoin was a huge part of that, of that pyramid, uh, you know, starting a podcast was one of those was one of those steps that I just knew I would have to take because it would expose me to an amazing network it would get me talking to people like yourself having these like you know crazily diversified but yet deep conversations with a total rando who I don't even know his real name like you know this is <laughs> this is this is absolutely amazing um but when you and I've I've t- I try and tell my kids to do this all the time. I've had two of them manage to do it so far. I'm still working on the other two. I'm like, write down who you want to be, where you <laughs> want to be in ten years, and it can be as fantastical as you like. Yeah. But when you write that shit down, it has some magical way of of coming true. And and you, what you just said is clearly testament of that as well. And yeah. It's going to seem like a long time off and you you might be stuck on the hamster wheel right now, but there's only one way off that. 
They've taken away your ability to save. It's gone. It's over zero or negative interest rates. They don't fucking care about you. Hat tip Marty Bent. They just don't. So it's time to step up and start stacking some sats and, and moving a little bit of that fear into Bitcoin. And just slowly, right? This is what I try and tell people. Just do it slowly because this isn't a get rich quick scheme. It's a get slow poorly scheme. <laughs> a get poor slowly. Yeah. I, I do think, yeah. Gets, yeah, yes, yes, that's right. I, I've had one too many beers at this point. <laughs> no, but but honestly, uh, build, building on what you said, I do think that... Um, no, we've still screwed that up. We've had too many beers. It's not, this is the it, message... Get rich slowly, right? Or, or <laughs> get... It all works. It all works. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm sure people will understand what we're saying. Yeah. Stack sats. <laughs> But but building on what you're saying, though, I, I do want to make a point that I do feel like most people who aren't in Bitcoin yet, as in they don't own any Bitcoin, feel like maybe they can ignore it or they're either too late. I get that a lot now, that people feel like they're too late in terms of buying Bitcoin. And this is not something I used to get when it was... Um, a few hundred dollars, maybe a little bit once it went to 10,000. But now I get it all the time. People think it's too expensive. And I do think a lot of that is unit bias, which is unfortunate because it does lead people down, you know, the valley of shit coins. Um, but what I'd like to say is it's not too late because you can still exchange your money for Bitcoin. And so long as you can do that, you're getting a great deal. <laughs> yeah. You're able to buy, you're able to buy a piece of a scarce asset that's set to be the next world reserve currency, the greatest mon money humanity has ever seen by several orders of magnitude. And you could trade your monopoly money for it. Still, they still accept it. I think that you should not be worried about Bitcoin being expensive and you should be worried about your wealth vanishing right before your eyes. So if I were the average person who still hasn't invested in Bitcoin, what I would do or what I would advise them to do would be to learn as much as you can, but start start buying some, start buying some, start understanding it, start experimenting sending from you know your your exchange to your cold storage and and learn i think the bitcoin community is extremely helpful i know when i was first starting out uh the reason why i learned so much was because i asked questions and people would go out of their way to help me to send me resources to send me, you know, instruction guides and all sorts of things. And I try to do the same for people. So if anyone ever needs anything, I actually keep my DMs open on Twitter and I help people all the time. So it can seem daunting at first, but it really isn't too bad once you understand some basics. Yeah, excellent.
Excellent advice. Reach out to the doctor for, for all kinds of advice, medical and Bitcoin. So if you had one orange pill left to give, who would you give it to and why? One orange pill. You know, I like the way uh, certain people have been responding to Bitcoin lately. You know, I'm seeing a lot of uh, Jordan Peterson. I'm seeing people debating with Eric Weinstein. I'm seeing Ben Shapiro. So if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said Jordan Peterson for sure, because I think a lot of Bitcoiners also kind of uh, took on his message of responsibility and and really you know, ran with it. And I think that that is part of the Bitcoin ethos, the the kind of self-sovereignty, responsibility, taking on uh, the weight on your shoulders and, and just doing it. And so I do think that he fits that mold. There are a couple other people that I would love to be into Bitcoin just because I would find it really entertaining. One of them would be David Goggins. I don't know if he's into Bitcoin, but if he was into Bitcoin, that would be amazing. Um, cause I just love to hear him yell about Bitcoin. That would be great. Um, <laughs> and then outside of that, I just hope that everyone in my, uh, friend and family circle has bought it. I've, I've pushed most of them into it, whether they liked it or not, but <laughs> the rest of them are kind of lagging behind. So I hope they get into it. All right, man. Well, that's brilliant answer and probably a good place to, uh, to wrap up. Uh, we've we've almost hit the two hour mark, which is just amazing. Like I said, that just a couple of plebs can just jump on a phone call and, and record it, and it <laughs> it adds some value to people. I, I can't believe people still tune in and and uh, and love this kind of stuff. But um, here we are. Um, so huge huge respect and uh, big thanks to you for giving up your time and, and coming on the show. Um, how can how can people reach you? Uh, I see you've also got a, a bit of a fun YouTube channel going on. So feel feel free to shield that as well. <laughs> uh, so m- most of the time people can reach me on Twitter, just Dr. Bitcoin MD. Uh, my DMs are open. So if you ever have any questions or if you're stuck, I can always try to guide you in the right direction. I do have a YouTube channel. It's also Dr. Bitcoin MD. It's mostly memes and fun and, some flashbacks to like when Bitcoin was a hundred dollars and CNBC's reactions to that. So it's just mostly fun over there. So yeah, if you ever need any help, I'm always available. And um, thanks again for having me on. It was great. Great chatting with you. Man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you on Twitter. Take care. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you probably picked up on some of the answers there. We were suffering with a little bit of lag sometime. The good doctor had to wait like uh, two or three seconds or so for, for my question to hit him. There's not much I could do in the edit process and, you know, who edits anyway? Check, check Marty Bent. I don't think he does any. Anyway, Dr. Bitcoin, what a dude. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. That was an epic rip. I want more people to go and find the good doctor if you're not following him on twitter already make sure you do he's got always some great tweets coming out and insights and he's getting more and more outspoken if you can believe it which is great for us because we get to see what's going on inside of his head and inside of his world which is very important so thanks again everybody for tuning in as well this 
wall of content week has been pretty full on. For anyone that's following these daily drops, I thank you. Um, I'm not going to let up. I still have plenty of content to release and I still have plenty of interviews coming up. So I will try and keep up with this daily drop as long as you guys are finding some value. For the sponsors of the show, a huge shout out and a great big thank you for, for reaching out and um, putting trust in my work. If you are in the UK and you want to start stacking some sats, there's one place you want to head and that is CoinFloor Exchange. It's a Bitcoin only exchange that's run by Obi and team. You can go find at Obi on Twitter. I have also interviewed him. Coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten will save you on commission. Then go and create your own affiliate link so you can share that with your friends and family. Swan Bitcoin in the US. I can't believe anybody in the US listens to this weirdo British accent, but guys, big hugs. Love you. Hope to see you in Miami. Fingers crossed the whole family can fly across there in June. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. They have you covered across the whole country you can go start stacking your sats you will get a free 10 bucks if you use that code and you'll get exposed to some of the purest bitcoiners in the space make sure you use them email them chat them on telegram dm them on twitter they're there to help you then here in europe you have a relay r-e-l-a-i dot c-h forward slash bitten you can download their app link your bank account and start sending across your fiat whether it's euros or Swiss francs because they are a Swiss company and you can start fiat cost averaging your way out of fiat and into Bitcoin in a steady, slow, responsible manner. All of these companies have your best interests at heart. I cannot state that enough. They will be all over you with customer support and help you understand exactly what it is you're doing if you need that help. Then of course, once you have started stacking, you've got to take control of it. This is the ethos of Bitcoin. Don't worry if you're not there yet, you soon will be. And you can use the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. That code will get you a, a, a small discount. But more importantly, it's all about taking control of these coins once you have them. Then they're in your control. Then you are becoming more self sovereign. Then you have this amazing power over your future and you'll be shocked at how it starts changing your mind and changing your thinking and changing your behaviors it's brilliant it's it's such a great feeling and uh, amazing part to be of this community if you want to learn more about the show and myself you can head to the site it's once-bitten.com and there you will find my book that's called choose life and i hope you check that out always open on the dms on twitter Look out for the next one, probably tomorrow, as the wall of content continues. Take care, guys. Have a great morning, afternoon, evening or night, wherever you are, and thanks so much for listening.